Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Uh, just before I <clears throat> start on uh, the talk, there's a question here. I find I don't have many insights while I'm sitting. My mind is either on my breathing or wandering off, at which point I bring it back to my breathing. Should I allow should I allow it, the mind, to wander off in certain directions? Should I try to focus on other things that are going on in the present? Um, the very fact of doing vipassana, the very, the very action of turning our interior that is the, that is our you know feelings in the body emotions and thoughts the very act of turning them into objects is itself insightful see the very fact that you can deconstruct an event and make it plain to yourself that there is the body with this with sensations there are emotional reactions, or the other way around, that anger arises in the mind and the body gets hot. Hmm? So that very fact of seeing that is the insight. Yeah? Insight is not a philosophical statement. It's experiencing something in a different way. See? And that business of impermanence is the same thing. If you can see clearly that as you're chewing, taste is arising and passing away, making that obvious to yourself, that's the insight. Now, these things take a long time to, uh, shall we say, build up a certain momentum so that it uh, becomes systemic and then you get a change of behavior. See? So, for instance... Um, you may, uh, you may be in the habit of getting drunk, for instance. And every time you get drunk, you wake up in the morning with a headache. And you say to yourself, every time I get drunk, I wake up with a headache. See? It's a sort of insight. And then you have to balance the pain of the aftermath of getting drunk with the joy and the pleasure of getting drunk. And at some point, it may occur that the pain is not worth the pleasure. At this point, there is a change of behavior, and one doesn't get so drunk. So it's the same with our emotional states. Every time we indulge in something, we tend to forget the aftermath. We don't actually realize that the boredom, the grief at loss, the frustration not getting what you want, is actually connected to the indulgence in pleasure. When that connection is made, that's the insight. Right? 
When you finally begin to realize that the pain of indulgence is not worth the indulgence, then you begin to change your behavior and it becomes systemic. See, so that's the process of this gradual change away from a life seeking happiness in the sensual world and seeking happiness elsewhere. Every time you meditate, you access a point within yourself, you see, the observation post. When that becomes clear to you, when you finally found this observer or feeler or experiencer, ask yourself, what's it like being like that? See? Now, on one level, it's very disappointing because there's no high. There's no emotional high. There's no big intellectual <coughs> interest. It's just a particular state. But it's bright, it's aware, and you can ask yourself, what is the emotion of the observer? Does the observer need thought? Does it need an intellect? Does that observer need a body to be the observer? See? So these questions, as it were, are reflections on that state of being the observer. The more you become accustomed to being the observer, the more there's a draw towards that place because that place actually presents us with... uh, Um, an experience which is uh, of a much less degree of suffering and potential of suffering than of being a body self or an emotional self or a thought self. These are just little insights which eventually sort of sink through the system and one begins to seek that place of being in that peaceful way. So it's the same when you're watching the breath. As you're watching the breath, uh, there's a point where you might become aware that the breath is neutral, it's not exciting, but it's actually rather pleasant. And the mind, the heart, which is developed on that neutral feeling is itself a rather pleasant place to be. And then one moves towards peace. One moves towards peace. Neutral feelings, because there the mind is very still, very quiet, and one begins to develop a taste for peacefulness. As you begin to develop a taste for peacefulness, those areas that you once really relished begin to feel gross. There was a person who came to the the Vihar in Birmingham, this is years ago, And he just sat that one time with us and came back the next day and told us that he couldn't listen to heavy rock anymore. This was a big move. (laughs) So that movement towards peace, towards a more subtle state of happiness, just naturally comes with the practice. Hmm? uh, The Buddha calls it inclining to Nibbana, inclining, hmm? sort of leaning that way. And eventually... You start, you see what I mean, yeah? You just just keep leaning that way. Now, don't confuse this with Nibbana itself. The position of the observer is still a false position. There's still the feeling that, oh, well, I'm not a body self. I'm not an emotional self. It's not me. I'm not an intellectual self. I'm this observer. I'm the objective observer. So this also is a delusion. 
And in your practice, when you've become quite aware of being that observer within yourself, the feeler within yourself, the experiencer within yourself, and you turn your attention on what it is you're actually experiencing, whether it's a a sensation from the body or a feeling, hmm, then there comes a point where, as it were, the sense of self disappears. The awareness, the self-awareness disappears. And there's just the experience of sensation, just the experience of emotional feeling. Hmm? So at that point, we can say that there is a small experience of Nibbana. That's with a very small n. Okay? Because at that point, when you come out of that experience, you can ask yourself, was there any suffering there? See? Was there any suffering in that state? So it's by that sort of reflection and by just this simple practice of observing, feeling, experiencing whatever is happening, hmm, that we are slowly discovering a state which is beyond the body, mind and heart. Yeah. <laughs> so for those of you who might be confused by what I'm saying, uh, you know, just put it all on the, black, on the back burner. And as you begin to meditate and progress, you'll see. It comes quite natural. These insights come quite natural. So when the question asks that um, I'm not having many insights, there's a presumption I'm, you know, in the question that the insight is some sort of intellectual thing. See? It's a direct experience. So there's one, there's one way, if you were climbing a mountain, if you were thinking of climbing a mountain, there'll be those people who can give you all the facts of the mountain but have never actually been up it. And there are those people who can't give you any facts but have been up it. And there are those who can do both. So now, who would you choose as your guide, you see? So it's the one who actually has experienced it. That's their mountaineering insight. Yeah? So your practice is a direct insight of the teachings of the Buddha. So when it asks, should I allow the mind to wander off, even though it's said in certain directions, the answer is, very firmly, no. Do not let the mind wander off. (laughs) Tether it to the object. Should I try to focus on other things that are going on at present? No. See? That's directing your meditation. Meditation is choiceless in the sense that you are standing back and whatever draws your attention... That's the object to observe. If there's nothing particularly drawing your attention, that's when you use the breath. And if there are many things drawing your attention, choose the one that interests you. See? That's a source of choice. But you definitely don't let the mind just go off on its own little trip, huh? So now this, this takes us to a sort of an overview 
of the Buddha's teaching. And I'm thinking mainly of people in the hall who don't know very much and, for the, and are actually, I think, meditating for the first time. Shock horror. It's, um, the Buddha is not just simply you know, the teacher, the one who's showing the way. His life itself is the, is the exemplar. The way he lived and what he experienced is the actual exemplar of the path itself. And in that way, it becomes a sort of archetype. So an archetype is a sort of built-in pattern of human behavior. You know, the, the, the behavior of, say, dictatorship or the compassionate person. These are sort of inbuilt ways in which, that, in which we behave. So when we look at the Buddha's life, you'll see it mirrored in the lives of any other mystic that you come across in any uh, spiritual form. Now, um, it begins in a way which is uh, usual to anybody who opens up to the spiritual life. There's a sudden questioning about what life's about. So there's a point in his life where two things happen. First of all is the uh, vanity of sensual pleasure. And this is wrapped around a story where after a party, he wakes up in the morning and there's all these bodies around and vomit and all this sort of stuff. And he thinks, well, you know, this is really terrible and horrible. <laughs> so that, that insight into the vanity of sensual pleasure, it's, it's passing. It's, you know, like when you have a good party, everybody says, let's have another one. And it never quite makes it, does it? See? So it's like... It's like um, even though we might have a supreme uh, sensual enjoyment, whatever that might be, uh, the mind latches onto it, wants it again, but the second time it's never quite, it never quite makes it. Yeah? You're always chasing the dragon. That's his first thing. And I think it comes to many people who um, really have taken pleasure to the, to the sort of limits. You know, uh, There comes a point where... Clubbing really is uh, meaningless, yeah? It's, like, it's, just, it's the same, same with sex. If you just have sex, it's meaningless after a while. If there's no relationship involved. I always recall Woody Allen who said it's true. Uh, just sex is, is um, uh, a sort of meaningless experience, um, but as meaningless experiences go, <laughs> so that was one part of it. Um, so in your own life, you see, just reflect. How much of your life is trying to seek happiness in something which isn't actually ever going to really deliver? It's always going to let us down. So it could be something quite silly like DVDs, but it could be something more serious like your job. See? Is there a way of doing your job where you're not actually putting onto it an excess, putting onto it a demand which it can't deliver? See? What are you investing your life in? 
And the other thing, of course, was the awakening to sickness, old age, and death. So it's interesting that this should happen to him in his mid-twenties because that's usually towards the end of youth that one begins to wake up to the fact that youth is gone and there's not much ahead. <laughs> it's like all we can see ahead of us, especially as you touch into middle age, is that slow decline to decrepitude and senility. So this isn't, <laughs> isn't a particularly pleasant picture. But as you turn around and face that, then there comes those existential horrors of sickness, old age, and death, the meaning of being alive. Hmm? And this is uh, very strong in him. And for those, uh, for those in-depth psychologists amongst us, it may be that the death of his mother when he was a baby, within the first week actually, might have been some pain within his heart which begins to manifest around about that age. So much so that, uh, you know, he's driven to find the answer, leaving his family. There's this lovely scene of him leaving his wife and child. To us, that seems a little callous these days, but remember, that was an extended family. And he was part of a wave. It was a, it was a time of great change within uh, the society of that time, both politically, a movement away from the sort of settled life of um, tribes that had their own um, ruling caste, the Kshatriyas, who would choose a chieftain or a head person, you see, to monarchical systems. And armies and real battles, real, real sort of heavy battles with elephants and everything. And there was the rise of the merchant class, the beginnings of capitalism, a very new rich class, one of whom became his main supporter, an Artapindika. And within that uh, turbulence around society, there was also this movement of trying to seek answers to a deep problem that was really felt at that time was this problem of rebirth. The problem of constantly having to come back as a human being, or worse, and reliving that whole process of being born, having to work, having to grow old, having to grow sick, and having to die. And for most people at that time, it became a sort of despairing thing. How do you get out of this, this wheel? To us, uh, like the Japanese, actually, uh, that doesn't uh, particularly concern us. Very few people in the West actually believe or credit the idea of rebirth. Uh, for us, it's, it's a little bit more immediate. We want, the, um, you know, we want enlightenment now. We don't want to <laughs> hang about for another birth, for heaven's sake. And when, this, uh, when Buddhism moved to Japan, the Japanese also did not have in their culture this idea of rebirth. So that's why Japanese, that's why Zen uh, had such an effect on Westerners, because it, it brought the whole problem into the now, the here and now, never mind the then and, and where. Yeah? But for the Buddha, for Siddhartha Gautama, that was the big thing. And there was uh, lots of 
people, well, men mainly, uh, leaving the home life in order to seek the answer. In the what became known as the Hindu tradition, the Upanishads began to appear, which were very different in content to the early scriptures. There was also the Jain leader, the Nigantha. So he began Jainism. He was an elder contemporary of the Buddha. And the Buddha himself simply joined that wave of seekers, a bit like the hippies. Yeah. And he tried two methodologies, which were the usual practices of those times, and both led him to a position of really despair. The first was what we know now as the jhanas, the absorptions, and he still taught those because they are skillful states of mind. But the jhanas are mental states that are produced through certain practices such as loving-kindness. They're ecstasies, but even they come to an end. And when he came out of his ecstasy, there was still this depressed, anxious Siddhartha Gautama. It hadn't actually cured the problem. Because even mental pleasures, over which you have a certain control, arise and pass away. The benefit of absorption meditation is that you don't need anything. All you need is a bit of clothes, a bit of food, a tree or a hut, and off you go. You don't need um, DVDs, uh, you don't need iPods, see? And you're in constant bliss. It's just a matter of being able to develop that mental state. Occasionally, in Vipassana sittings, suddenly you might get a very beautiful state of mind arise, very peaceful, hmm? very joyous. So when that comes up, recognize it as the beautiful mind. When the, Buddha fully, when the Buddha is fully liberated, that beautiful mind does not leave him. The beautiful heart does not leave. It's not as though he becomes an insensate blob or something. Hmm? There's still the heart which is full of compassion, love, joy. You don't forget that, joy. Hmm? And equanimity. Uh, but both of these he found wanting. This sort of practice he found wanting, and he ended up doing mortification practices. Mortification practices were on the understanding that the problem really lay in the body, that the mind, if you sort of reduce the body, the mind would leave the body in some sort of way. And in leaving the body, which was the cause of suffering, it found Nibbana. So everything was put into the body as the problem. So if you didn't, if you didn't eat, then uh, greed wouldn't arise. If you, if you kept your senses completely turned inwards and didn't look out, then you weren't bothered by the sights of the world. And the understanding, the underlying understanding, was that what was at fault was the body itself. The body itself was the tempter, not the mind. And he practiced that to his usual uh, extreme degree and simply got very thin and still ended up as being anxious, depressed, poor old Gautama. So having done that, he finds himself having to leave his companions and um, sitting by the roadside, somebody comes along, Sujata, offering milk rice to 
a local god, and seeing this poor fellow uh, offers it to him. In the scriptures, of course, he looks like a god full of gleaming, and she's attracted and offers it to this god sitting by the roadside. But I think that's just, shall we say, a gloss. <laughs> he must have looked pretty awful. So eating that, eating that rice, eating that milk rice sort of vivifies him, but it also does something else, or at least it doesn't say this, but I can only make that connection, that it reminds him of his childhood. And there's one thing he remembers about childhood, the one thing that comes to mind is watching his father doing a ploughing ceremony, and it's the way he's watching which uh, gives him a new inspiration. And... This tells us really what, um, what qualities we're trying to develop. And we're trying to develop the mind of a child. Now, if you go back to the way children, especially under the age of seven, absorb into an object that they haven't seen, huh? their eyes become fixated. It's as though they forget the, the world. They're so concentrated on this beetle they've never seen before. The jaw drops. Huh? They look gormless. Yeah? They're very still. They're completely absorbed in what it is they're looking at. And then after that certain absorption, after it's digested, they wake up and they ask, what is it? Hmm? Now, those qualities are the ones we're trying to get back to. Only we're going back now with a certain uh, ability to, to think for ourselves a certain ability to understand ourselves. So this very intelligence which is there within the child has been, for want of a better word, educated. So to get back to that position is our practice. In Zen it's known as original mind. Now note that, note those particular uh, qualities, the stillness of attention. Huh? the absorption into it by way of interest, a real curiosity, a real wanting to know. No intellectual understanding whatsoever. Hmm? No thoughts, no word for what it is that your child sees. And that complete relaxation that comes with it, which manifests in that very relaxed jaw. Yeah? So, when you're... In your meditation, yeah, just bring that to mind. Those qualities of wanting to know, the curiosity, and drawing yourself into the object. Hmm? Getting lost, as it were, into the object. And if you find that you're getting tight, that your jaw's tight, that your body's tight, this tells us that there's something entered into that equation. And it's usually... Trying to see, trying to understand, see? Now, this intelligence that we have is constantly shouting at us, saying, get that meditator out of the way. It's an absolute pest, see? <laughs> so, our job is to relax, uh, to relax, and to, as it were, get out of the way, just place the attention on the object, and let this intuitive intelligence do its work. Now that takes a certain confidence that there is within us, this intuitive intelligence. And we'll never really find that out until we make that act of faith. 
just to observe. Now, as a sort of um, example of that, uh, the eye, for instance, once you place it on an object, sees. The whole process of perception takes place of itself without our interference. Hmm? Now, one little exercise we can do right now, which I haven't done for a long while, uh, to, to sort of show that to ourselves, is just to look into the palm of your hand and just observe how the eye moves around the palm of the hand and picks up information. You don't have to do anything, do you? The eye sees. That's what it does. It's not the first sign of madness, by the way. Yeah? So it's the same with the ear. All you have to do is put the ear out there and it hears. You don't have to try and hear. Hmm? So it's the same with this intelligence. One doesn't have to try to have an insight. That's going to get in the way. It's a case of just placing the attention on the object and, having, and just watching, drawing up the interest and allowing this intelligence to see for itself. So that was the big discovery by the Buddha. This manner of teaching, which has become known as Vipassana. Vipassana just means to really see. Pasati just means to see. And he formulated over a period of time uh, the Four Noble Truths, which encapsulates his whole view of life, hmm? which he puts to us not as some sort of dogma, some sort of this is what you have to believe in order to become enlightened or in order to become awakened. He puts, us, he puts it to us as something to investigate. And the first, this noble truth of suffering, is basically telling us that this suffering is caused because of wrong view. And the wrong view is through these three avenues that we've been investigating, these three distortions, uh, the impermanence of things, the role of desire, and the doctrine of not me, not mine. So these investigations into these three things are the way in which we can overcome the suffering that's being caused because of this wrong view. But he also points to, in the second noble truth, to something very specific. And he says that the cause of suffering is desire. Now, the English word desire is, is not quite right. The word he uses is tanha. This, this is a desire which is based on wrong understanding, the desire of seeking happiness in the sensual world. And it's a case of him saying, if you actually look at your experience and investigate this process of desire, it will take you to the end of suffering. Yeah? So whenever we're sitting and we're observing the mind and we're observing how when an object comes, you see the reaction to it, right? just to see that reaction is to see the second noble truth. Now, this word tanha splits into two types. It either is to do with 
attaching, holding, wanting more, or pushing away, annihilation, an aversion, or its opposite, running from it. So you've got this initial fork which creates our relationship to the world of wanting to seek happiness with what we've got, whether it's an object or a relationship or health, it could be anything, anything you care to name, of this world. If it makes us happy, we'll try and hold on to it. This holding on to it creates real cramp, right? Creates a cramp in the heart, a cramp in the mind, and it creates also an enemy because if anybody wants what we've got, you have to get rid of them. That's pretty simple. And if that person wants what you want is bigger than us, then we run for it. So, it, so this aversion forks into two other reactions of fight and flight, and it's worse. Now you can see, if our relationship to the world is always on this level of wanting, not wanting, not wanting by way of aversion, anger, hatred and all that, fear, anxiety, then we're just stuck in a milestrom of just constant suffering, even when we're not particularly aware of it because we're lost in pleasure. Losing ourselves in pleasure means that we're not recognizing that a lot of our suffering is dependent upon that attachment. So there's your second noble truth. Now, the third noble truth tells us that there's an end to this delusion. There's an end to this suffering. And he doesn't actually call it Nibbana at this point, but there is an end to it. So if there were no, if, if, if there was no escape from this particular life form, then we could only expect it to continue in this way. But his discovery was that there was an escape. This, this escape is not something otherworldly. It's actually within this world, right here and now. He was, in, he was liberated from his suffering at the age of 35, um, according to the story, under the religious fig tree, right there. And then he didn't disappear. He didn't turn into a sort of... Um, uh, nameless, unspeaking uh, blob under this tree with a sign saying, I've made it. I mean, he, he got up and he was perfectly normal. When people met him, they recognized him as Siddhartha Gautama. When he went and sought his old friends whom he thought might listen to his teachings, they knew who he was. But as he approached them, they felt that something was very different. And it was feeling that difference about him that they prepared a seat. And the constant question he asks of them as he's giving his first talk about his experiences, have you ever heard me talk like this before? See, he goes, he's talking away, he's telling them what he's experienced and he keeps asking them, have you ever heard me talking like this before? See, and the companions then begin to really listen. And by the time he's finished his second talk, uh, all of them have made uh, real spiritual progress. So uh, there's something about his experience which even his close companions, people around him, actually felt something was changed within him. In fact, there's a charming little 
uh, tale about him first meeting an ascetic on the way to his companions who says to him that he's, he's very bright, he's glowing. And he says, who's your teacher? And for some reason, he goes into this huge um, description of himself as a fully enlightened being, at which point this uh, ascetic says, oh, yes, right, fair enough, and then <laughs> and wanders off. And I think he, he learned from that. That's not quite the way to get the message across. So um, that whole business is then transferred to us as people you know, interested in his teaching and wanting to see it as a path where we can also attain some sort of happiness, hopefully a permanent state of happiness, uh, we have to go through that same process. So we have to leave. We have to leave the world. Now, you might say, well, that's, you know, I'm not ready for that. I'm reminded of that story of, you might remember it in the Bible, where that rich young man approaches Jesus and says, what do I do in order to enter the kingdom? And Jesus says, leave everything and follow me. Oh, no, he says, I keep the commandments, I do this, I do that, I'm very generous. What must I do to enter the kingdom? So Jesus says, leave everything and follow me. And the poor, this, this young rich man goes away shaking his head. He's not, ready to <laughs> he's not ready to leave everything. So here, the Buddha, you see, this, this business of renunciation, right? Now, it's not as though we have to be dramatic. We don't have to, uh, you know, just leave everything and don't put on some rag robes and wander around the streets. Uh, we can do it in a slow, gentle way, reminding ourselves that wherever we see an attachment, wherever we see a dependency, mm, that's where the suffering is. So even on simple things like, you know, TV, how much TV are you watching, which is really just an escape? How much, of, how much TV are you watching, which is to do with developing yourself as a human being? How much news do you watch, even though you know it's the same news over and over again? So, as you see yourself moving towards the TV to distract yourself, see, that's when you say, hold on, so you stop. And you have to stay with that wanting to escape the situation that we might be in. So we might not feel very well, might feel lonely, might feel depressed, anxious, but we're always trying to move out of it, we're always trying to escape it. And we do it by holding on to something which gives us pleasure. Now, it's in doing that we're creating this wrong relationship. It's an escape, but it's very temporary. And it's building up a psychology which has within it uh, an enormous amount of turbulence. And when life hits a wall at some point, even if it's only at the point of death, then all this stuff is becomes really heavy so thinking in the long term it's good to work with it right here and now and just begin to see where you're attached where the work is that you can do in a gentle way without you know um, uh, without taking it to extremes and when you renounce something you see wait for the pain of it to pass and then ask yourself is there a sense of relief you know, is there a sense of deeper calm, a deeper peacefulness? 
as that becomes more and more plain to ourselves, the more and more we want to renounce, the more and more we want to let go of things that we once held on to, thinking that they were giving us joy. See? And then eventually, through that process, you see, we're slowly inclining to Nibbana. So coming here on this retreat, you see, you've done an enormous amount of renunciation. What would you normally be doing on Saturday and Sunday? Consider having a good time. (laughs) And here you are, sitting on these flipping seats, (laughs) going through all this pain, having to follow a, a schedule over which you've no control, having to listen to this person up here telling you to get on with it, not, not being able to eat when you want to eat. See, was, why are you going through all this? See, there must, be, there must be within you some reason, some understanding that this is the process of renunciation. You're actually experiencing it right here and now. Huh? And at the end of the retreat, you have to ask yourself, was that really worth it? You see? <laughs> So, uh, in terms of our practice, um, don't forget that it's extraordinarily simple. Not easy. Nobody says it's easy to sit here and be still with our stuff. Uh, but it's extremely simple. We're not, we're not asked to investigate intellectually. We're not asked to do anything extreme. Huh? We're just asked to actually just sit and observe. Just sit and feel. Just sit and experience what's arising and passing away. And the magic of the whole process is that you begin to realize you don't have to do anything. The heart itself cures itself. All it wants to do is release these turbulences. We put a name on these turbulences. We call them depression and anxiety and all that. But when you take away those names, what are you left with? You're just left with feelings. That's all it is, just feelings. See? It's the mind which is causing problems. That's why we try and reduce the mind to a single word. When you look at pain, for instance, pain in your knee, this word pain brings up all sorts of horror stories, exploding knees, things like that. So putting away those horror stories and actually getting into the pain, you see, you might still be noting pain, pain. As you, as that equanimity comes with the pain, yeah. So the aversion has passed. You found some sort of stillness with it. You enter into the pain to discover what it's made of. And when you go beyond this mental barrier of pain, you find that actually all there is is heat and pressure. Basically, just heat and pressure. And when you're at that level, ask yourself: Is there suffering? See, so long as it's not ridiculous, you can stay with it and just experience not pain, but just sensation. And then as you come out, as you, come, as you back off that, that sort of uh, in-depth 
experience. And as, you, as it were, pull away, the word pain comes back. See? So, that, so then you begin to realize pain is a mental construct. It doesn't actually exist in the body. What exists in the body is just sensation. And as soon as you say the word pain, there comes a whole history that comes with it. Just in these very simple exercises, we can see how we build a world of suffering for ourselves and how we can undo it, you see, by, first of all, not believing the mind. By always going to the actual experience in terms of feeling, in terms of sensation. This in itself is a liberation. even with emotional states. So we might feel depression. As soon as you say depression, there comes a whole history. Anxious, there comes a whole history. It launches us into a horror future. But actually when you sit with it, when you go into it and feel it, what is it? It's just a feeling. It's not a pleasant feeling, but in so doing you find a peacefulness with it. And you're allowing that anxiety, depression, anger, whatever it might be, to expend its energy. So that's the next insight that you have. Every time the mind picks up on an emotion and develops a storyline, unwittingly it's developing that state. So the more you have anxious thinking, the more you get anxious. As soon as you stop the anxious thinking... You're just left with the raw state, which is the emotional feeling state. Now, you may think that that's some form of suppression or repression, but it's not, because you're allowing the heart to speak in its own language, which is feeling. Hmm? Suppression and repression is caused through aversion, through fear. You're pushing stuff out of your mind. But here you're opening up to the heart. You're actually allowing the heart to speak its own particular pain. See? And in that way, the process of therapy takes place of itself. And it's much cheaper. <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to do anything, see? But you have to have faith that this actually is taking place. And that's not always something that's obvious because the more you open up to yourself, the more the stuff comes up. As soon as you take off these suppressive measures of fear and aversion, the heart's liberated to express its feelings. So it it definitely gets much worse before it gets better. So you've got to hang on in there and put your trust in it. So that's a sort of just general overview, um, mainly for people who haven't done this sort of work before. I can only hope my words have been of some assistance, that you will struggle on indefinitely till you find pure liberation from all this horrible stuff, (laughs) sooner rather than later. You're supposed to say sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you very much. That means, uh, that means well done, you see. So if I don't get that feedback, it doesn't feel so good. Eh? It's my attachment. In the uh, Buddhist scriptures, the Buddha gives a talk and 
the monks and the listeners were delighted by it. But sometimes they're just silent. <laughs> so if you take a little break, I think there's uh, some walking meditation, actually. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.